News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So let's talk about Indigenous education, what that means. Despite repeated recommendations and calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we don't have Indigenous education that is mandated across the country. So the Global News Current Affairs show, The New Reality, is exploring this issue, the idea and importance of, you know, thoughtful and accurate education about and with Indigenous peoples and the role that that could play in really bringing about some change. Now, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Kamya Razavi, who is the national news producer for The New Reality. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Sammy. Thanks for having me. How did you dig into this issue? Well, I uh, proposed uh, that we look at Indigenous education as a story uh, back in the summer. You know, the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves across the country this year outside residential schools really sparked a national conversation over the treatment of Indigenous peoples across this country. And in Canada, we have a rather incomplete picture of the history of Indigenous peoples. And they're active contributions to Canadian society today. So, for example, as you mentioned, across the provinces and the territories, Indigenous education is still not mandatory. And so that means that many Canadians went through the public school system never learning the full picture of residential schools or not learning about the huge diversity and vibrancy of Indigenous peoples in Canada today. So on our story on The New Reality this weekend at 7 p.m. on Saturday across Global, we're going to be looking at what Indigenous education done in a good way actually looks like. Done in a good way. That's the key, though, right? And what does that mean? That's absolutely the key. And, and the most important thing, as we discovered in our story, is to develop programming and resources by working in partnership with local Indigenous leaders and elders. So not in a bunker, actually working with people in the community, in the local community, to develop those resources. Um, for example, a lot of uh, high school students or elementary school students um, going through the public school system, they're using resources and materials that, as one of the students in our story described, are written by old Western people. And Indigenous education means looking at resources, and there's plenty of them out there, that are actually written and developed, de- developed by Indigenous people. And so that's one of the ways to incorporate this type of learning into the curriculum. Right. Is it hard to update that information, though, Kamara? I could imagine getting into the curriculum of an education system must be very challenging. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it takes uh, a real mindset shift. It requires teachers school board administrators, parents, students, basically to sort of step outside of their comfort zone and challenge the status quo and rethink their assumptions. The resources are out there. It requires going and looking for them sometimes. Um, But yeah, it can be done. And it's being done, as our story shows, in pockets of schools across the country, not across the board. This is still uh, baby steps, but it's starting to happen. And we're going to show exactly how it's happening. So which are there some provinces that are perhaps a little more ahead in this or is it really by district by school board? You know, that's a great question. And yes, there are some provinces that are really leading the the way. Uh, British Columbia uh, is a great example um, where school boards are working with local Indigenous communities to really change that curriculum and develop their programming through an Indigenous lens. 
But uh, across the country, as you mentioned in the introduction, this type of learning is not mandatory. So often, Indigenous education, learning about the history of residential schools, learning about the active contributions of Indigenous people, this type of learning happens in social studies or history class. It's typically an elective. Um, but what advocates in our story are, uh, are saying is that Indigenous education should be worked in, should be needed right throughout the curriculum, that the entire curriculum should be developed through an Indigenous lens, and that is not happening across the board yet. Yet, you said, though, but is there progress being made on that front? Yeah, absolutely. There are a handful of schools across the country. So Elk Island Public Schools in Edmonton, Sherwood Park, Alberta, near Edmonton, is really taking huge steps to develop this type of programming right across their curriculum. So, for example, from the start of the school day right until the end of class, Indigenous elders and leaders are in the classroom and working with the students, um, speaking to the classes in their, uh, in their languages, outdoor education, which um, many Canadians might have done once or twice a year. This is a daily occurrence. Um, they're learning about residential schools. They're learning about the values of fairness and equity in the earlier grades. Uh, they're learning about the different ways to take care of our planet, which is central to Indigenous ways of knowing and being. This type of learning is happening. It's kind of woven into the programming all throughout the day, not just in social studies and history. So that is one example. There are pockets of other examples across the country as well, as we feature in our story. A lot of the schools are still run by the bands, so they're band-run schools, but it's starting to trickle down into the public school system, into the regular public school system. And that's key because reconciliation ultimately begins with the public school system and with education, educating the next generation of Canadians to think differently and to have a more complete view of the history, the treatment, and quite frankly, the active contributions of Indigenous people to this country in the current state. Man, I can't wait to watch this. And come here, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's Kamiya Razavi from The New Reality. That is a global news current affairs show. It airs, new episodes air Saturday nights at 7 p.m. You can also find them online at globalnews.ca. All you have to do is Google The New Reality and Global and it will come up. You know, for a long time, there's been this idea that when it comes to helping low-income parents, that the only way you could do that was to provide, you know, goods or be very careful with the money that you gave out. That if you were to just give the money with no strings attached, that somehow that wouldn't work out or the money would somehow be, you know, used for unimportant things. I mean, and that's that's a myth. And we're seeing more and more evidence of that, too, because there's new research out of Washington State University that shows now that those low-income parents, if they receive some kind of guaranteed income, they are actually more likely to spend it on their kids. And isn't that the whole idea? So joining us now to talk about the findings of this is Mari Amram, who's from the Department of Sociology at Washington State University. Mari, thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. Well, tell me about what you did in this study. Like, how did you learn this? Of course. Um, so I studied the Alaska Permanent Fund Disband, which is a universal cash transfer that has been in place in Alaska since 1982. So this permanent fund um, gathers money from oil revenue and distributes to all Alaska residents in October of every year. And what I did is I compared the spending of um, Alaskan households to other U.S. households throughout the year um, using data from the Consumer Expenditure Survey. 
And I see that throughout the year, Alaskan and Alaskan households spent similarly. Uh, but then when Alaskan households um, receive the dividends, so in October and November, they do spend more on children than other American households. That is so interesting. So all you had to do was look at the spending habits and see what they right. were buying. Yes. I also looked at spending from year to year. So instead of looking at spending from month to month, I looked at aggregate spending throughout the year. And whether in years where people received more money, they ended up spending more than years in which they received less money. And that turned out to also be true. So when you say they were spending it on their kids, like what were they spending the money on? How could we see that benefit? Yeah, so I looked at uh, five different categories of spending. I looked at clothing and electronics, which are spending on goods, right? And uh, um, basic necessities, at least for clothing. Um, and then I also look at spending that develops human capital, um, such as spending on school, um, recreation, um, and lessons and extracurricular activities. Um, yes. Okay, and what did you find? So I find the low-income parents increase their spending on clothes and electronics, which is unsurprising, um, but also on school, right when they receive the, the dividend. And middle-income parents do the same. They also increase the, their spending on clothes and electronics and school, but high-income parents do not. High-income parents only increase their spending on clothing. And when I look at aggregate spending, so spending throughout the year, I see that low-income parents um, do not keep up on their spending on education, but they do increase the spending on recreational activities. And middle-income parents are able to continue increasing on education, but also increase uh, uh, investments on lessons, uh, uh, extracurricular activities, and recreation. High-income parents, on the other hand, only increase spending on clothing. Okay, this is so interesting then, because that's such an important part of childhood, right? Is these recreational activities, team sports, things for kids to do. So you're saying that it sh this showed that with some guaranteed money, Parents do spend mm -hmm. more on those recreational activities, teams, that kind of thing for kids. Yes, absolutely. Particularly low and middle income parents. Now that sounds like it makes quite a difference. So Mari, has work like this been done before? Um, not exactly, no. There is no work looking at child-related spending and the, the Alaska dividend. Um, there is some work that has been done looking at the EITC, uh, which is the Earned Income Tax Credit here in the U.S. I, I will say that the big difference is that the EITC is a conditional cash transfer program that gives lump sum payments to parents who are low income and working. So it really doesn't give you the ability to compare the behaviors of high-income and low-income parents in the same way that the PSD does. Right. But would you say then that showing this, that there is a benefit to children? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, spending in children has been shown to really uh, benefit children. And, and this research shows that giving parents money increases the spending, which in, in turn likely also increases the benefits for children. Okay, so what are you going to look at next, Mari? What do you do with this research now? Well, um, I'm actually doing, um, together with a colleague at the University of Arizona, we're doing some qualitative interviews 
um, on on the Alaska dividend. So we're actually interviewing um, higher and lower income parents about why they spend the money the way that they do. And we're hoping that with this, this, this research, we're going to be able to uncover the motivations for their spending and understand really, in particular, why we don't see spikes in spending among higher income parents, which would be what every researcher would expect. Um, I'm also looking at some health behaviors, such as breastfeeding with colleagues at NYU. And uh, uh, we're seeing also spikes in breastfeeding around the time of the dividend, particularly for kids born around those times. So we're also going to start looking at marriage and divorce. We're really hoping to look at an array of outcomes related to these universal cash transfers. This is so interesting. Amari, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Of course. Thank you so much. Now, in fewer than five years, the province of British Columbia is going to end direct funding for children with autism. Instead, they're moving to a hub model for services, as they're called. And we gave you some background on this just a couple of minutes ago. But there are still questions about this. For instance, will families get the same amount of money out of the hub model as is currently available to parents? Well, that's a lot of questions that still haven't been answered, even for the parents who need these answers. So joining us now is Kay Banyas, who's president of the Board of Directors for Autism BC. Kay, thank you very much for being here. Yes. Hi, good morning, Simi. I hope you can hear me all right. Yes. Um, there's just so much to say. And, you know, I, I'll do my best to share the concerns of our community. And, you know, like you said, uh, there's a lot of questions unanswered and even reactions to the announcement has been varied. And many are, you know, feeling some really agonizing anxiety right. and, and devastation Um so it's it's a big uh, yeah. announcement. To, to yeah, let me ask you about the letter that was sent out to by Autism BC. I know you have raised a lot of concerns. What about the process here? Was anybody consulted? How much say did parents have? Yes, actually, so we were not consulted prior to the announcement. We had one meeting with on October 15th with uh, Minister Dean and a couple of other uh, government um, uh, officials. And uh, we asked because we were hearing from our community that there are these changes, you know, there are some information that's going around in our community. We weren't sure we didn't know about it. And we were not consulted about it. And, you know, the people who were um, involved in the making of these new policies were uh, supposedly had signed a a non-disclosure agreement. So we couldn't get information from anywhere. And so with this meeting, this one half hour meeting with the minister, we asked these questions. Well, is this going to be a hub model? What is it going to look like? How? What's the operations of it going right. to be like? Will we be able to keep our individual autism funding, which is needed by so many in our community? And we did not receive any firm answers. And we also asked when these um, these new changes will be coming into effect or when the announcement will be. And again, we did not get a firm answer. And so we are very uh, shook to... Uh, hear about the announcement just like everybody else Um, we would have loved to have been consulted even you know days prior to the announcement so that we would be prepared to help our community so what do you think of the idea though okay of a hub model of what they're trying to do 
Yeah, so there's many questions about this hub model. You know, I, I, we do want to acknowledge that in some communities and with some parents, the hub model may work depending on how, again, the operations are going to be because we have families and communities where there are uh, there is a lack of service for uh, professionals uh, that are in those communities so they couldn't access. So, And for parents who are too overwhelmed, let's say, to build their own team, to find all those resources in different places, a hub could help them with that. Now, this hub model, there's so many questions that we have as uh, parents and organizations. Who, uh, the main thing is that who determines when they're calling it a needs-based model, who will be determining the needs of that child? So when you talk about needs, usually there is an assessment involved, right? So to understand what a child needs, you have to really know what the child makeup is all about Mm -hmm. and especially for children on the spectrum it is such a complex diagnosis and so you know we are so disheartened that parents are now starting to remove their children out of the wait list thinking that an assessment is not important but that's important to finding out exactly what needs are of the of right. those children. You know, Kay, I was thinking mm-hmm. back in, in, in time in the last 20 years, and it just feels like parents who are dealing with these issues have always had to fight the provincial government, it seems, no matter which party oh, is gosh. in power, to to get funding to help kids who are on the spectrum. Hasn't it, does it, has oh, it felt like goodness. that? You know, it's it's not just in in MCFD, it's also in education. And you only have to look into what's happening in education right now, where parents are pleading uh, school administrators saying, my child needs more, my child needs this, my child needs support. And, you know, in education, they're saying, well, there's not enough resources. Or yes, there's, yes, we understand that, but we we don't have the infrastructure to provide that, that support or we disagree and so we will not provide support. So this is the really big concern is that what does this needs-based actually mean? And another thing uh, with a hub is that the limit there might be some limitations of services that they could provide. They mentioned physio, behavior consultants, OTs, but many of the kids on, in our community are accessing specialized services such as uh, therapeutic horseback riding, specialized tutors, music therapy, uh, specialized equipment and assistive communication technologies that we can avail from right. the autism funding that we receive. Okay, so then, Kay, what are the next steps here? You've Obviously, you've put out a lot of statements. It's a very comprehensive statement about your concerns here, but what happens now? Yeah, so we would love to hear from um, the minister directly and work with with the government in answering these questions. We need questions answered and we need parents to be consulted. It is such a diverse community that we need to know what is happening and what we would like to see really ultimately, to be frank, is to have options. You know, keep the keep the, the autism funding available for families who are working with it and are doing well with the funding and providing great services for their children and then have the option of the hub for families who could benefit from the hub. Right. And then you could really see a needs-based, child-centered approach that they are talking about. Okay, so okay, we're going to have to check back in with you to find out how this goes. But thank you very much for your time this thank morning. You. Thank you for your time. You know, I'm thinking our next guest is probably in a pretty good mood today. It's Vanny Sartini, acting head coach of the uh, Vancouver Whitecaps. How are you doing this morning, Vanny? I'm very good, Simi. How are you? <laughs> I am good, but I'm thinking you, you team had a great week uh, how would you describe that last game? I thought it was pretty exciting. 
Yeah, it was. It was. It was a very important game, and uh, we were able to win. First half wasn't that good, but we were up anyway. Second half, we played much better, and we basically we claimed the victory. We deserved. We, we deserved it, and at the end was uh, beautiful to celebrate with the fans and to and to and to be in the position that we are now, where we have to do, we have to finish the job and, and then arrive in the playoffs. Okay, so how critical is this next game then on Tuesday? Uh, it's very critical. It uh, uh, it looks like I'm a, I'm a broken record, but every game now <laughs> is very important. <laughs> and uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's a game against the LA. They are three points behind us in the standing, so they clearly wants to win and try to reach us if we if we're able to to get a result there our chance to to make the playoff increase uh, increase enormously so it's uh, it's a very important game right and so this one is on the road you're playing in Los Angeles right yes Tuesday we'll play in Los Angeles yeah. well let's talk about then how the team has performed on the road and they've done pretty well yeah 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 uh, we Lately, we last week we had uh, uh, the win in Portland and uh, the tie in San Jose. So I think we are reaching a level of, uh, I would say, condition and awareness of uh, uh, that uh, allows us to to do good even when we are uh, far from Vancouver. And a few weeks ago, we were doing very well at home, uh, and I would say so and so when we were away. But now. Uh, when the point counts, it's uh, uh, we, we we're doing well even away. So hopefully we continue this trend. Okay. So what um, what do you think are the highlights? What is the team doing well right now? Well, what they're doing well uh, with with Minnesota the, and also San Jose the, the last Saturday the the defensive performance was very solid. It, it was really hard for the other team to find. Uh, pace and to find a way to uh, create chances against us and uh, that allowed us to to be clinical and to be I would say uh, uh, more calm when we had when we had the ball and uh, to to create goal chances to try to win but I think that uh, in both the games uh, uh, the performance when we didn't uh, have the possession of the ball was really good. Okay, so you've been on a bit of a roll here since what about mid July or so? Like what? So they're doing a lot of things right, but you've got two games left here. Does this get more stressful? Do you think is there more pressure right now, Vanny? I don't know the player, but I'm very stressed. <laughs> <laughs> so honest. This is what I love about talking to you on Fridays. You're so honest. <laughs> uh, well, of course, it's. Uh, I would say. Maybe stress is not the right word, but we're a little nervous for sure because, you know, uh, uh, we worked a lot. We were behind in the standings and we and we did this uh, um, very good role, as you said, uh, in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, and now we're in a position that uh, we can really get there. And, uh, and so we need to make the, the last effort because uh, the job is not yet done. It would be a pity not getting to the playoffs after doing this uh, fantastic march in the last uh, 12 games. So that's that's what it is. We're a little nervous, but also excited. So we're really looking forward to the game in 
LA on Tuesday and then with Seattle the next Sunday. Okay, any habits, any soup? We've talked about superstitions. Is there anything that you are doing or have done that you have to make sure you do for the next couple of games? Well, uh, the superstition is the, the, still the socks. I have, uh, I have an Halloween. I, I have an Halloween edition now because I for the for the home game I use the uh, socks with socks with the uh, uh, pumpkin on it. Yes. And uh, for the away game, uh, they gave me socks with the uh, with the Canadian flag. So there is. So since we go to the United States, we so we we just wrap the the country, and also it brings luck. So. So it's okay. So, but if you if you have any any special thing that I need to do, nope. just just tell me. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm not gonna mess with you. I'm not gonna mess with your routine right now because Knockwood things are going well. So, Vanny, I look forward to talking to you next week, and good luck on Tuesday. Fantastic. Thank you, Sim. Thank you. That's Vanny Zartini. He is the acting head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. You know, pets are family. I mean, at least my dog certainly thinks so from the amount of room that he takes up on our couch. But I think most people think of that. If you've got pets, then they are part of your, you know, your family unit. They probably think of you the same way too. And we know how anxious pets can be when we leave them sometimes. But it turns out that people can feel the same levels of anxiety potentially when they're also away from their furry friends. Fascinating look at this. Alexa Carr is a researcher in human development at Washington State University and joins us now. Alexa, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. What did you look into here? What, 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 which relationship did you look into? So we looked into a couple of things. We um, recruited a randomized sample of uh, first-year college students. And using a survey, we asked them to describe their relationship with their pet and their feelings about leaving them behind. And what did you find? And we found that 75% of our surveyed students reported mild or greater separation anxiety from their pet. In fact, one in four reported symptoms of moderate to severe separation anxiety from their pet. Okay, so is this during the pandemic or do you think this is just overall? So this data was collected uh, the fall before the pandemic started. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, pre-pandemic. And so I'd be really interested to see, you know, yeah. how, how this is different now that many students, you know, spent a year at home with their pets doing school. I was just going to say, Alexa, I'm guessing that it's gotten worse, like not just for the students, but also for the pets. Yeah, very possibly. And, you know, I'm always hesitant to... Uh, uh, you know, because I'm a researcher, hesitant to draw conclusions that we haven't researched yet. But intuition, uh, you know, definitely makes that sound possible. Okay. And what do you think it is about that relationship between students? So the younger people at home, obviously, and that and that relationship with their pets that is so unique. I think you kind of touched on it in your introduction. So many families now consider pets to be a family member. Um, paired with that, you know, findings from this study showed that, you know, the students who had higher separation anxiety from their pet also tended to be the ones who reported you know, uh, seeing their pet more as a person, identifying them as a friend, uh, sharing a bedroom with them at night when they sleep, and just generally spending a lot of time with them. You know, you're reminding me very much right now, I have a 21-year-old son who's away at university, and whenever I talk to him, all he wants to know is where the dog is. Like that's, yep. that's yep, exactly what he that's does. That's a research question that we're looking into is, you know, what happens when students then are on campus and, uh, you know, what do they do when they miss their animal? Are they communicating with family members at home about their pet? Um, if so, how often? 
Yeah, that's exactly what happens because he's always like, "Send me a picture, show me, show me a picture. What is what is he doing right now?" And I think this is a bit much, isn't it? But now you're making me feel bad that I haven't paid enough attention to this. <laughs> so how do we how do we build on that? What do we do with this information? Well, right now this is just really, really early, uh, early research, and so there's still a lot of work that that we have to do. Uh, you know, another question that we have is, you know, what happens when we offer pet visitation programs on college campuses? Uh, we know already that they're relatively common and, and growing in popularity. And it still leaves questions, you know, for those students who are experiencing pet separation anxiety, specifically, you know, moderate to severe levels, you know, how does how do these programs uh, affect them? Are there unintended consequences? you know, such as potentially exacerbating uh, separation anxiety, uh, you know, for them missing their specific pet back home. Right. How does that separation anxiety manifest itself, Alexa? How do they know? So some of the questions that we asked uh, were related to uh, activities, you know, if uh, missing their pet uh, impacted them from going out and uh, getting involved, um, if missing their pet, you know, had them... uh, you know, really kind of restricting behaviors. And again, you know, it's early, early research. And so there's still, you know, many questions of, you know, what does this actually look like on the college campus? And how, again, how are students adapting? Um, You know, particularly what happens over time? Do symptoms lessen, you know, as students adapt and get more involved in college and make new friends? Uh, You know, or you know, does it remain stable over time? And do you think this is a relatively new phenomenon? Like, do you think, I mean, 20 years ago, would we have treated pets this way or would we have seen this kind of anxiety? 20 years ago, I, I'm not quite sure. I do know that, you know, over the last decade or two, uh, our relationship with pets has uh, changed and we have seen an increase in uh, families reporting pets as a member of the family. That said, you know, I'm hesitant to say that, that pet separation is a brand new, a brand new phenomenon. I think it's just something that we, you know, haven't really looked at yet. Okay, so where do you go from here now? So from here, we continue, you know, we continue asking questions. And so, you know, some of the questions, again, that I am, I'm looking at is what happens when students are on campus? You know, ideally, I'd like to look beyond, uh, beyond the campus, too, because I don't think that it's just, just college students moving away from home who are experiencing this. Right. And I should have asked this earlier, but are we talking about just dogs here? Because cats, like people get awfully attached to cats, too. They do. So actually, we asked students, um, you know, regardless of the pet that they owned, and we did ask them, you know, what their pet was. And as a part of measuring, uh, one of the things we measured was their attachment to their pet. And so we did ask them to identify a favorite pet. And the majority of this sample uh, identified a dog as their favorite pet, um, followed by a cat. And so we did look at um, cat owners and other animal owners as well. Oh, so fascinating. Alexa, thank you. And now I have to go phone my son and show him a picture of the dog. Thank you for that. <laughs> thank you so much. Now, we have all heard the stories at some point in our childhood. Maybe we even grew up saying it to our own kids when they got older. And that is, you have to be careful with Halloween candy because you never know. It might be contaminated or somebody heard a story somewhere of, you know, a razor blade in an apple. That was the one that I always heard growing up too. Or needles maybe or something. Something like that. It's the reason why a lot of parents are very careful, you know, to make sure that the Halloween candy is, you know, safe for their kids. But it did get us wondering, how accurate are these stories? Are these urban myths or do these things actually happen? 
Well, guess what? There's somebody out there who actually is a leading authority on this issue. He also happens to be a sociology and criminal justice professor at Delaware University. His name is Joel Best. He joins us now. Good morning, Joel. Good morning. How does one become a specialist in this area? Well, I'm the only person who's actually done research, I think. I've I've, uh, looked at press coverage going back to 1958, and I can't find any evidence that any child has ever been killed or seriously hurt by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. And that is in the United States? Canada, too. my, My research covers both. Wow. Okay. So where do these stories come from then? Well, it's a contemporary legend. And, and you know, so uh, it's not that you hear stories that this happened. What you hear is you got to watch out because this is the sort of thing people do. And, and um, you know, there was a dad who I think uh, uh, believed these stories, and, and he murdered his son. Uh, and he was, this was in Texas, he was tried, convicted, executed eventually. He never, he never confessed to the crime. But I think the reason he did it was that he thought that, well, uh, this is the perfect crime because they're, they're, they're killing kids all the time this way and no one will ever suspect me. And he, he was wrong. Uh, clearly, yes. Uh, so <laughs> you're saying this has just been an embedded urban myth essentially for decades? I mean, I remember hearing this when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's what it is. It's and it, uh, it's it's one of those stories that we tell, and uh, you know, it's like the Hook Man or, or any of these other stories. Right. And uh, uh, you, uh, uh, you know, each year it rolls around, and you can roll it out and, and uh, you know uh, uh, tell it again or make reference to it, and everybody knows what it refers to. Right. But and, Joel, you, you just uh, said you know, something so interesting, though. What it really is about, then, not about the bad things that people do, but it's about us believing that somebody out there yeah. will do something bad. That says more about us, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And see, I think that what this, this is, this is going to be a little weird, but, you know, I think this is about anxiety about the future. I think that, you know, we live in this time where people are warning about all these apocalyptic things that can happen, everything from nuclear war and climate change to asteroid strikes. And uh, we, we deal with this you know, we we have a lot of anxiety about the future, and we're not able to do much with it. Taking a cloth bag to the grocery store is not going to end climate change. And, and uh, you know, but children are the walking, talking future, and protecting our children becomes sort of a way of, you know, trying to do something about the future. And so we have all kinds of restrictions on kids that we didn't used to have, and you know, you can do this with Halloween. You can say, I'm, you know, I'm worried about you. I want to protect you. I'm going to be a good parent. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to let you go trick-or-treating or I'm going to let you go trick-or-treating, but I'm going to inspect all the treats or we're going to go trunk-or-treating in the church parking lot or whatever it is. So, and I think that's that, that's what's going on. Right. So w- what happens, though, with that is, and we always say this, that bad news travels faster, right? So rather than focus yeah. on the fact that millions and millions upon children safely trick-or-treat every year, we tend to really wrap our heads around that. Maybe perhaps one scary story or one story where well, that yeah, didn't work yeah, out. There, there, is, there isn't even any news. I mean, year after year after year, you know, there's, there'll be news that somebody found a, a nail in a candy bar, but nobody ever gets hurt this way. Right. <laughs> so it's, you know, and, and, you know, people who followed these up have concluded that the vast majority of these are hoaxes. Uh, and so it's, it's just, um, 
Or are there close yeah. calls though, Joel? Like that's the thing. Like, so you were looking at whether or not somebody actually got injured or whether any charges were laid, but what about cases where some, somebody did still come across something in the candy might not have injured them, but they still found something. Well, I, I can't, obviously I can't prove that that didn't happen. Uh, uh, I'm just saying that there's there's no evidence that, that this is going on. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, th- I don't know, four or five years ago, uh, there's a little town near us in Pennsylvania. There were some kids who posted on Facebook a picture of a, a nail in a candy bar and said, uh, you know, well, we got this trick-or-treating. And everybody got very excited for a day. And, and uh, the police went out and interviewed the kids. And they said, well, we faked this, of course. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's it's you know you can't say that something's never happened, but uh, I don't think this is something you need to worry about. Uh, you know, if it makes you feel better to inspect your children's streets, have at it. I didn't <laughs> inspect so my kids' streets. That is so true. If it makes you feel better, have at it, Joel. This must be given that you're a specialist in this. This must be an incredibly busy time of year for you. <laughs> it is. It is. In fact, <laughs> I've got another interview in ten minutes from another Canadian station. <laughs> So you're just like back-to-back interviews leading up to Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, this has been a, a busy year, and, and the reason it's a busy year is that uh, uh, you know every every couple of years uh, people will get excited about uh, the idea that uh, THC uh, infused candy uh, could poison children, and uh, we're having that this year. Uh, so there uh, there have been a number of, of warnings about THC infused candy, and you know wherever marijuana recreational marijuana has been legalized, you tend to get these warnings the next. Right, and I've never I've never seen a report of anybody showing up in the emergency room for this either. Okay, so the days after Halloween, then are they also busy for you, Joel? Are you like scouring all no. like all the news no. or anything? No, no, no. There's there there's, there isn't anything to report. You know, when I started reporting this research, one of my friends said, "Boy, you're, you know, you're going to be in terrible trouble because you're going to wind up on Oprah." You know, and <laughs> you're going to be there with with the mother of little Emily who died. You know, and. And, uh, you know, that made me nervous for a couple of years. And I realized this is never going to happen. Uh, you know, this, you know, why would somebody do this? That's a good question, right? But I, I work in a business where we ask that question and it seems to get answered too. So Joel, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. All right. Okay. Now, at some point, you've probably visited Alder Acres Family Farm, and it's been around for decades. It's definitely a destination at this time of year. A lot of what they do there is based on the honor system, though, that they trust you to take a pumpkin, pay for the pumpkin, that they're not going to constantly make sure you're not taking things that you shouldn't be. Unfortunately, some of that is going to have to change after what has happened over the last couple of weeks. To talk about this disappointing chain of events, joining us now is Melissa Anderson, the Operations Manager at Alder Acres. Melissa, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, Alder Acres has been such a destination for people. For people who don't know, though, what kind of farm is it? What do you guys do there? Um, I guess simply we we offer experiences, right? Um, So we have all sorts of little farm animals little and big, and we allow people from all walks of life to come in and experience these animals and what we do as farmers here. And how open is that? Is people are just kind of free to walk around and see all that? Oh, yeah. Like there's, we, uh, yeah, you don't really have any private spaces on your own home here. Yeah, you can wander around. Um, there's many different little pens that people can go in and cuddle all the little animals. Um, and yeah, like I said, there's really no secrets. You wander about and have your own experience. Now tell us what happened in the last couple of weeks. 
Um, well, just over a week ago, we noticed that one of our kittens went missing. So we have a couple little kitten pens, and people can go in and out as they please. Um, and at the end, of it, and we have staff around all all throughout the day, um, but we don't stand there every second of every day and watch every single person that goes in. Um, and later in the afternoon, one of the days, we noticed there was a kitten missing. Uh, so as a family, we sort of talked about it if we wanted to go public, and we chose to just sort of keep it quiet. Uh, and then a week later, another one went missing. So that's when we decided that we were gonna we were gonna do something about it. And I don't know if we'll get the kittens back, but we at least wanted to share what was happening, and maybe the people or person or whoever did it would would feel some sort of remorse. Has anything like this ever happened before? We have had a couple animals in the past go missing before. Um, once was actually a kitten. We've had a day-old piglet, believe it or not, go missing. And we have had a couple bunnies. But that hasn't happened for a few years. So this was sort of happened twice in, in one week with yeah. a, bit of a bit of a gut punch, you know. I can imagine, especially when it seems like you have a very close relationship. You trust people when they come to your farm. Oh, for sure we do. For sure we do. And because the, the, the faces that you see, the smiles that you see, the feelings that you feel when people are just so grateful to be able to have that experience, um, little kids and big kids alike, right? Like from yeah. any age, from two years old to 90 years old. And you want to be able to share that. So what's going to change now, Melissa? Are you going to have to, you know, I don't know, make some alterations to this? Unfortunately, we're probably going to be putting in security cameras um, by by next year. And then at the moment, uh, for the rest of our season here, some of the animal pens, you won't be able to go in unless there's staff supervision, which, yeah, which is really unfortunate because there's 2% that are sort of ruining it for 98%. And it, it goes against our values and what we want to do and how we want to share our farm. I can imagine. So when it comes to these kittens, though, I understand that they had already been adopted out, right? They had homes to go to. Oh, yeah, yeah. They do have homes to go to. So, yeah, that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a dagger for, for some of those families that have already fell, fallen in love with these kittens, right? Yeah. Okay. So when do these new measures start? Uh, they started a couple days ago. Like for the staff supervision, they started right after right after the first one. It went ramped up a bit, and then after the second one, now we have signs that are they're sort of ugly because they're boom in your face that because of recent theft, these pens will not be open unless under staff staff super, supervision. Um, but the camera deal won't start until next year. Right. What's it like for the family, though, Melissa? I know this is a family-run farm. It has been for decades. Like, how do you how do you feel after having something like this happen with people that you trust to come onto your property? Well, to be honest, like when it happens, it's really really disappointing. Um, personally, it just makes you angry too. Um, but the outreach that we've had from the community around us has been so touching. Um, and really that's, that's what's overcome all of this is just, yeah, the community around us has really reached out and people are understanding and, and it's, I don't know, it, we've really been touched by, by everybody else and how they've responded to this. And there's a lot of people out there that have our backs and, and we thank everyone for that. That is so nice to hear. That's very uplifting. 
Yeah, yeah, out of a negative situation, there's always got to be a positive, right? Oh, there does. But what is your message then to the people or person who took the kittens? I hope you feel pretty bad about what you did. Right. You'd like to have them back, though. We would like to have them back. We would like to have them back, for sure. But more than that, I, I really hope that you recognize that you didn't just hurt our family. You're hurting a bunch of other kids. Um, and other people that now are not going to have the same experience that maybe they would have had before. Um, you're, you're taking away some of those privileges and some of those rights. And, and yeah, you don't want to look at everybody with, with more scrutiny. But unfortunately, that's yeah. sort of what, what our eyes are now going to. Yeah. What are your hours? I know people still want to come out and visit, though, Melissa. So what's going on at Alder Acres this weekend? We are open 9 till dark. Every day until Halloween here. So today, tomorrow, which is Saturday, and then also Sunday. So, yeah, 9 a.m. till dark. Is this, like, your busiest time of year? Oh, yeah, this is the crazy time of year. This is, yeah, I don't even know if busy is the word for it. We just, <laughs> we run off fumes. You run off fumes. Do you know how many people come through the farm, right, like, at this time of year, like, on a daily basis? On a daily basis, we get hundreds. Uh, depends. Rain, rain sort of scares some people away, so if you... If you want more time with the animals, come on a rainy day. Um, but sunny days, yeah, sunny days we get we get into four digits. I'll bet you do. Well, listen, good luck, and hopefully, you know, something good will come out of this. Maybe they'll return the kittens, but we want to know if there's an update, Melissa. So thank you for joining us. Judy, thank you very much for having me.